praise his name, bless his holy name. I would ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of John, the second chapter, verses 1 through 11. That's the book of John, the second chapter, verses 1 through 11. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by just saying, Amen. Amen. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. The word of God from John, second chapter, verses 1 through 11. And the word of God says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifest his glory and his disciples believed him. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing, but most importantly, that we too will believe him. You may be seated. What we have to deal with this morning is the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus Although this first miracle, this first sign, at best could be labeled a semi-public presentation since only the servants and the disciples had any knowledge of the very source of this new wine, that this new wine came merely from water. The whole picture of Jesus' public ministry extends from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 12, verse 50. In these 11 chapters, they, have known, they are known now as the book of signs 
because Jesus reveals his glory in these 11 chapters. Glory as the only son of the father who is full of grace and truth. John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. So we see the word of God continues from the opening prologue of John, even now into John 1.14. And when we read these words that Jesus became flesh, doesn't mean that Jesus were, was no longer God. He didn't cease being God. Rather, the word of God, who was God, also took on humanity. So what we see here is a matter of addition and not of subtraction. Look at Philippians 2, 6 through 8 to get a better idea. Who though he was, he, personal pronoun, refers to Jesus, who though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Man, this is an amazing statement here, because you have to think about who we're talking about, the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, God, who is the holy son of God, he took on human nature and lived among humanity as one of them, both God and man, in the same person. And as John goes further and he says that Jesus dwelt among us, it means that he pitched his tent. The word is skenao, and it gives us an illusion to the whole idea of God dwelling with the Israelites in the tabernacle. Look at Exodus 25, 8 through 9. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. All through the Old Testament, we see that God manifests his presence to his people in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. And now here is God taking residence with his people in the fact that now he's the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. He comes to fulfill all of the Old Testament symbolism. And he shows himself later on in the New Testament that through the Holy Spirit, Christ becomes a temple for each and every one of us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And then Christ will make us, later on in the same chapter, will make us both into the church and the Christian body. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 and 19. 
Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. All of these references of glory refer back to the Old Testament passages giving us the manifestation of the presence and the glory of God. We recognize now that we see all of that in the Son of God, who is exactly like his Father, has the exact same attributes. He has a Father and Son relationship with God. Monogernes speaks of a one-of-a-kind, unique son. One-of-a-kind, unique son. Just like Isaac, who was called Abraham's one-of-a-kind son. Hebrews 11, 17 through 18. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now remember, Isaac was the son of promise, unlike Ishmael, who was the son of mere parentage. This word grace indicates God's unmerited favor that always brings us blessings and joy. And the phrase grace and truth here refers to the Hebrew phrase behind it, which is steadfast love, hased. Look at Exodus 34 and 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Look at these attributes. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This whole expression, steadfast love, is a covenantal loyalty that God has with us, with his people. And this covenantal loyalty and faithfulness is seen clearly in the fact that God sends his one-of-a-kind son to redeem us. It's not that the Mosaic law was bad, it's that Jesus was so much better. God graciously reveals his character and his righteous requirements to the nation of Israel and later to us Gentiles because he sends Jesus. The remaining chapters of the book of John, picking up at 13 and going to the end, we speak of them as the book of glory. Here we see the one week of the passion and Jesus is being glorified. And we recognize really from chapter 2, 1 to 4, 54, that there's a consistent theme that is being threaded all through this quilt. It comes out of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Behold, the old has gone and the new has come. Just remember that with our time today. Behold, the old is gone, but the new has come. We see five different evidences of this. We see the replacement 
that Jesus is to the old purification by wine of the kingdom of God. We see the old temple and the new Lord being risen. We see the new birth and the new creation that is happening because of Jesus. We see the contrast between the water of Jacob's well and the living water that comes from Christ. We see the comparison in chapter 4 where Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well and he says, we worship what we know, you worship what you do not know. There will be a time when we will neither worship in Jerusalem or on the mountain, but we will worship God in spirit and in truth. It's amazing to me how the Bible ties itself together so tightly. We see this first miracle happening at a wedding. And we think, what does a wedding have to do with the public ministry of Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ but the bridegroom? Who are we but the participants that will one day be at that great wedding? We see here that this sign John is relating to us has a purpose. All of Jesus' signs have a purpose. It's to convince the people of Christ that the Son of God is Jesus Christ. John 20, 30-31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, if we see all of these signs throughout the book of John as feeding grounds for our faith, we will be able to see Jesus as he clearly is. We also see that John's presentation here is vivid and it's vital. He's not telling us a story like some disinterested historian, but he has passion behind it. And then we see that John is writing with the backdrop of the Old Testament in view. He wants us to recognize that these signs and miracles are coming from the pages of Scripture and things that have been prophesied long ago. You know, many years ago, I met an alcoholic that became a believer. And in a conversation before our Bible study, he was asked by a visitor of that Bible study, how in the world could he possibly believe in all the nonsense in the Bible about miracles? In fact, the question to him was, do you believe that Jesus changed water into wine? That's ridiculous. He says, sure I do, because when I was drinking, Jesus was able to change whiskey into furniture. You know, even today, most adult Christians agree that there are miracles still being performed by the power of God through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Give us eyes to clearly see this morning your son Jesus and his ability to perform signs, wonders, 
and miracles that give you glory and that confirm that he is the Son of God. Let us recognize that in Matthew 16, 1 through 4, Jesus challenged the Pharisees and the Sadducees to see the sign of the time. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test them, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you said, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. An evil and a adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but there will be no sign except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Later he challenges others who are following him, but they're following him falsely. John 6, 26 and 29. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your field of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Lastly, John 4, 46 through 50. So he came again to Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the words that Jesus spoke to him and went on here. So bless us today, O oh Lord, as we hear and discover this son of God, this Jesus Christ, as he turns water into wine and as he saves the best for last. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior and all God's children said, Amen. We see here that Jesus turns water into wine even though his hour had not come. The text tells us clearly the third day there was a wedding in Canaan and Galilee. But we've got to understand that John is counting this differently than we are probably counting it. When you look at the sequence of days that start back in John 1:19, you see that a delegation is sent uh, to interrogate John the Baptist, 1:19 through 28. That's the first day. The second day, we see John the Baptist announce, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
the third day, he brings two disciples to Jesus' residence. The fourth day, we see Nathaniel and Philip being saved. We don't hear anything about the fifth day. We don't hear anything about the sixth day. But when we get to the wedding, he starts talking about the third day. How does he add this up? He's adding three days to the last date. And when you add the three days to the last date, you get a complete week and you recognize that the wedding happens on the Sabbath. It happens on Sunday. And what John is trying to show us is what Jesus is trying to show us. He's trying to draw a plumb line from marriage to creation. The good news of creation and the good news of marriage we see all through uh, the Old Testament in the first and second chapter of Genesis. John 7, 21 through 24. Jesus answered them, I did one word. And you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the Father. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body whole? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So it's not hard to see that his first miracle takes place at a wedding. It seems that it's designed to prevent serious social embarrassment, but there's a lot more to this. The wedding takes place in Canaan and Galilee. This links back up with the fact that the last time he started counting with numbers, he was there with Nathaniel, who is from Canaan. And we see here that it tells us that the mother of Jesus was there. Throughout the whole book of John, isn't it interesting that the mother of Jesus is never named? Perhaps to keep confusing her with other women with the name of Mary. She appears in two other narratives and a couple of brief allusions, but she's never named. Verse 2 tells us, Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. The mere fact that Jesus is invited to the wedding, Mary is invited to the wedding, his disciples are invited to the wedding, suggests that this was a close relative or family friend. And maybe even this is why Mary was concerned about giving out of wine. Maybe as an auntie or sister, she was involved in making sure the catering went fine. But look what happens in verse 3. When the wine ran out. You might want to ask, Pastor, why was this such a major problem? Well, I'm glad you asked. In ancient days, a wedding celebration could last as long as a week. And the financial responsibilities would lay with the groom. To run out of supplies would be a dreadful embarrassment. And in a culture that was really a shame culture, it would lay bad evidence about if he couldn't take her to wedding, how he's going to take care of her for the rest, of the rest of the marriage. The wine here wasn't just mere grape juice. 
but it was strong wine. You know, in the ancient times, wine was diluted uh, between two-thirds and one-tenth of its fermented strength. It was something less than American beer. But here, we know it was strong drink because later on, John uses a verb that tells us that they were liberated, they were drunk. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. What was she expecting when she voiced her complaint? It's more likely that she turned to Jesus because she had learned to rely upon his resourcefulness. Remember, everything is pointing to us through unspoken words that Joseph has died. The last time we see Joseph in the New Testament was when they were on the caravan and they turned back around when they noticed Jesus was not with them and they go back to the temple and they find him in their teaching. And he says, why were you worried? Didn't you know I would be about my father's business? So now, from that point on, I think he's 12 to 13, the family fortunes have relied upon the manual labor of Jesus. So like any widow, she had learned to lean hard on her firstborn son. But look how Jesus responds to her in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now this is a puzzling response to say to your mother. We recognize that gune means dear woman. So even though it's still courteous, it's not the endearing term or the address preferred from a son addressing his mother. But yet we see Jesus do the same thing. He refers to her the same way when he tells her that John will be taking care of her after his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. What we see here when he says, what does this have to do with me? It was an idiom, a Semitic idiom, that spoke of distancing two parties. In fact, this was aided by the person's tone and their degree of reproach. The tone wasn't rude, but it was certainly abrupt. We recognize here that Jesus is given at the very least a measured rebuke to his mother. He's declaring to her, and this is important, Mom, I love you, but now I'm about my father's business. And no one has an inside track to manipulate or to ask of me. They ask of me in the will of the Father. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. But I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8.28-29, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just what the Father taught me. And He said, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, 
for I always do the things that are pleasing him. You know, this had to be tough. She nursed him. She taught him. She was even persecuted and abused when, by those who didn't believe the miraculous birth story. She has come to rely upon him for everything. But now all those family ties, all of those things must be subordinated because of his divine mission. We see something similar in Matthew 12, 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, so he's in the synagogue, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You recognize that, number one, the guy interrupted him because he's speaking truth in the synagogue and they wanted to do anything to throw him off. You recognize that his mothers and brother outside, that his brothers were coming because they were embarrassed. They did not believe that he was Jesus, the Son of God. But Jesus calmly sees through all of that disruption and, his, and he makes his point. And then we see in his last moments on the cross, John 19, 25 through 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clophus, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said, Mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Mary, like every other person, must now come to Jesus as the promised Messiah who takes away the sins of the world. We see him as he rebukes Simon Peter. Look at Mark 8, 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man may suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Stop right there. Can you imagine taking Jesus aside and rebuking him? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus distanced himself by telling his mother, My hour has not come. Horror. When he refers to his hour, Jesus is referring to his death, burial, and resurrection. 
John 7, 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. John 8 and 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come. John 12, 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 13 and 1, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John 17 and 1, When Jesus spoke these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour lifts up the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mary doesn't understand But how does this point connect to what's going on? I think if you look clearly, you will see that Mary is asking a question, trying, or really making a request, trying to get that request fulfilled. But Jesus is looking at this in the symbolism and the view of the gospel. He's looking at this past what she might envision. Mary doesn't want this wedding to end in embarrassment. Jesus wants people to see the tie between the Old Testament that characterized the the Messianic age when wine would flow liberally. Look at Amos 9, 13-14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grace, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. He's trying to tell them, behold, the old has passed, the new is coming. I'm the new. He's trying to make sure that they keep focused as he was on the cross to come and they would see his healing ministries all through miracles and signs through his public ministry. John 3, 27 through 30. John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness. And I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one, listen to this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Now remember, the wedding could be as long as a week, the ceremony. No one knew when the bridegroom was coming. 
He's traveling. You see, later on in a couple of parables, they call out because they hear the voice of the bridegroom as he's nearing. Picking back up here, it says, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom who is coming. And I will supply all the wine that's needed for the messianic banquet, the great wedding ceremony that's going to take place in heaven, but my hour has not yet come. But I want you to look at the faith of his mother as he turns water into wine and as she's been courteously rebuked, she tells the servants, do whatever he says. John 2 and 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love Mary here. She shakes off this gentle rebuke and exemplifies the best kind of persevering faith. She's like that Canaanite woman, uh, Canaanite woman that was rebuked back in Matthew 15, 23 through 28. Listen to this. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. You see, Mary is rebuked for presuming on a family tie, yet she displays perfect faith. She's content to leave it in Jesus' hands. So you've got to be able to ask Jesus for what you want, but you also have to be content to leave it in his hands. She still trusts him because he has never failed her. You know, the African impala can jump to a height of over 10 feet and cover a distance of over 30 feet. This is a magnificent creature. But the, if you go to a zoo, you will see they build a big chasm in front of that because they recognize this animal will not jump where he cannot see where his feet will fall. We see here, faith is the ability to trust what we cannot see. And with faith, we are freed from any chasm or enclosure that entraps us. Mary trusting Jesus could not see where her feet were going to land, but she takes a leap of faith anyway, and she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. As he turns the water into wine, we see that he's able to keep the good wine for last. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding about 20 
of 30 gallons. Each jar held two or three measures. Each measure would be eight to nine gallons. If you put the pots together, you had a 100 to 150 gallons of wine. These six water jugs were made of stone because stone could fight infection better than earthenware, and they didn't contract uncleanliness. They were there because of the ceremonial washing. They represented the old Jewish law and custom, which Jesus was going to replace with something new. Behold, the new has come, the old has passed away. Look at Luke chapter 5, verses 36 through 39. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. I think even this number six refers to the incompleteness of the Jewish rites. Because we recognize that all through the Bible, the number seven represents what? Completeness. The Jewish dispensation was incomplete until the coming of Jesus. And he performed his miracle on the seventh day. Look at John 2, 7 through 8. Jesus says to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it to him. We recognize this master of the feast is what? He's like the wine bibber. He works with the catering company. He's the one that will give great credibility to the quality of what is being served. And then we see the sheer quantity of the wine being turned into uh, over 150 gallons shows the lavishness of the new age to come in Jesus. And he tells them to draw the wine from the jar. Usually, everywhere in the Bible, you see them drawing water from a well. Here, with the water that was turned into wine, he wants them to draw that and take it to the master of the feast. He wants to symbolize that this new wine is the wine that represents the messianic banquet. Even the words, filling the jars to the brim, indicates that the time for the ceremonial purification is over and now the new order symbolizes that wine is intimately connected with the purification that comes only through Christ. Look at John 2, 9 through 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, 
Parenthetically, it says, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, hey, everybody serves a good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, he's, what he's saying here, when people have become drunk and they can't tell the difference anymore, then the poor wine is served. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This again goes and refers back to Jesus Christ as being that bridegroom. The one that has the power to turn the water into wine. Even though they have thoroughly enjoyed it, what was being given to them previously, now they see that the best is yet to come. Because Christ has come. John is pointing out that he provides the superior wine and it's tied to the Messianic age. John ends this with verse 11 when he says, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Behold, the new has come, the old has passed away. Jesus reveals his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And because they saw it, they placed their faith in him. Have you seen the power of Jesus Christ and because you have seen it, have you ascribed your faith to him? What are you waiting on? Do you not understand that faith and works travel side by side, step by step, like the walking legs of men and women? First faith, then works, then faith again, then works again. And if you're truly in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus is in you, you won't be able to distinguish one from the other. Augustine once said this, understanding the reward of faith, therefore seek not to understand that thou mayest believe, but believe that thou mayest understand. Oh, Lord, we ask you to give us strength this day that we might understand. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you, and we're just overwhelmed by your graciousness, overwhelmed that you sent your one-of-a-kind Son to redeem us from our sins, to give us a passageway to eternal life, to save us from your wrath, which is surely to come. We look forward to our celebration with you at the wedding feast. We look forward to being your humble, loving bride who will be with you forever, celebrating our relationship, honoring you as our Father and our God. It is in the precious name of your Son, 
and our Savior that we ask it all. In Jesus' name, amen.